Welcome to Kyperian Commentary. This is episode 72. I'm your host, Yuri Brito, and I'm with Dustin Messer once again. Dustin, before I make some introductory remarks, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well. I'm in a secure bunker. This is the first human contact I've had in days, so it's very good to talk with you. Dustin, we will make it. <laughs> we will get through this. Just um, keep doing what you're trained to do, my friend. All of us have gone back to some of the great classics of civilization, like Will Smith's I Am Legend. <laughs> and we have learned in many ways that a lot of these movies portrayed something that all of us thought was so distant and so unfamiliar. And now, as you write in your wonderful article, a lot of these things sort of provide uh, a relief from the anxieties and fears and the language you use, which I thought was really magnificent, was the language of detoxifying our bodies of fears. And so th the first thing I want to say is your latest article for Breakpoint was very well done. And I want to add just this little caveat here because I'm always fascinated by, by writing in general, especially succinct writing. And I assume you have a, a word limitation when you write your articles, but I just want to really thank you for being succinct and for choosing your words very carefully because we have a, a verbose sort of uh, culture we live in where people don't know how much to say. And my old prof used to tell me that when you try to say everything, you say nothing at all. So thank you for not trying to say everything, but for making uh, your words uh, concise and understandable. But again, let me go back to your point here. When you talk about detoxifying our bodies of fear, what, what has been the role overall of movies and poetry in general in, in helping us rethink our lives? Yeah, it's a good question. And let me just say to the earlier thing, the editor at Breakpoint is a guy named Tim Paget, who's uh, a wonderful author in his own right and has, has written really well on specifically evangelical history, but has a gift for taking words and condensing them and restructuring sentences. And so that uh, that piece particularly, he did uh, just really good work on to make it more more concise. Um, you know, I, so I started thinking about this because I was reading, there's a Shakespeare scholar at the University of Virginia who writes a lot on pop culture and the ways in which uh, a lot of our media is derivative of Shakespeare. And he introduced me to this debate between Plato and Aristotle over whether or not fictional narrative is, is helpful or, or a net positive for society. Plato's thought was, well, it appeals to these emotions in, in man. It stirs them up, and that's really not healthy. Um, and, you know, he said it, it moves you from the mind to the heart, which isn't a good thing. What Aristotle said was, he said, well, it does do that. He said, but it provides a cathartic effect. He says it's a carthesis, and it has an etymological connection with an enema. And the idea is we have all of this fear, anxiety in us. And Aristotle says drama is a way to suck it out of us, to pull out these sort of toxic um, feelings. And, 
as I was thinking about that, so Paul Cantor uh, discusses this about what the word carthesis means and, and, and why it's significant. And I thought about how, you know, it's so true that we are drawn to violence on the screen or violence in the text. And in a way, we imagine the worst case scenario. We imagine that which we are afraid of, you know, the movie Contagion, which is so um, just, you know, prescient in terms of what's happening to us. But it goes even further. And we watch these things to think, okay, what if the absolute worst thing happens and we want to see one guy or one family just make it through? In other words, it's a cathartic experience because it says, okay, maybe the absolute endpoint, the absolute worst thing could happen. And yet here's someone who makes it and you, and identifying with the character suffering, you identify with their victory also. And don't you just see this? I mean, this revival of dystopian media and books um, is really incredible. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Contagion, which you say was uh, 270th place in Warner Brothers movies, and now it's the second most watched behind Harry Potter. And then, interestingly, the Albert Camus novel from 1947 is also having this, this kind of revival. Is this is is this an era where this literary vibrancy can actually stimulate the Christian community to actually do some good for culture when this is passed? And I presume very soon. But do you think we, we are at a time when we can go back to the basics of, let's say, classical education, of good literature, of good writing? as a way of stimulating us and catapulting the church to a new place in the the intellectual world? You know, I hope so. It's interesting uh, when uh, Colin Hansen has a really good book on revivals and, uh, you know, we don't have to get into all the particulars. And Richard Lovelace also has a good book on this, but uh, it really does feel like this moment particularly would just be right for a revival. And of course, it's a sovereign work of God. And so you can't just point to sort of cultural factors at play. But that being said, you know, the the wood is is stocked in the fireplace, it seems to me, for uh, a new spiritual awakening. And, you know, it's, it's up to God to give the spark. But if God did give a spark, I think people now really are um, looking for, you know, deep, significance and meaning and so forth. So I hope that it does lead to a revival. It strikes me that one way in which <clears throat> this was sort of the, you know, focus of what I wrote, one way in which um, the church can speak into this dystopian uh, appeal is we say, you know, it, I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, to say, well, Christian art or Christian media or Christian thoughts should sort of all be bunnies and bubblegum. Well, the human impulse to look to dystopia, to look to um, the Walking Dead or or Contagion or Westworld or whatever it is, um, we as Christians, especially during this time of Lent, can say, not look away, but look at something worse. In other words, you know, dystopian literature invites us to say, what if the worst thing imaginable happens 
and then they play it before us. But Christians, we say there's actually something even worse than a zombie apocalypse or um, or a, a contagion of a virus or something like that. Uh, there is um, sin, death, and the devil, and it is the story is worse than you can imagine. In other words, um, it is not only the body that can die, but the soul also, and in that context, we look to the suffering of Christ. Um, I, I would be interested. I haven't looked it up. I would love to know if Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ is, uh, I'm sure in Lent, the view, the number of times it's viewed goes up. I would be fascinated to know if it's gone up this year particularly. And you can track some of those things through streaming. I mean, it's hard to know when someone has a DVD, obviously. But in looking at the suffering, death, passion of Christ, we see all of our fears uh, taken. And Lent says, don't skip to Easter because you have this deep in you, this knowledge, you know, we start with Ash Wednesday of your mortality, of your death, but also of not just your creatureliness, your mortality, but also your sinfulness. Lent is a way to actually look squarely at the dystopia of life on earth with sin. And it prepares us for Easter because, of course, Easter is the great reversal. Uh, it's the utopian resurrection to the dystopian death that we see in uh, Lent in, in the crucifixion uh, and death of Jesus. And so it just strikes me that as you ask the question, you know, it's incumbent upon us to pray that the church would be able to have a voice and to call people not to look away from the chaos, but to look even deeper in the chaos, find hope. I would be interested in hearing from you because you have written really uh, well and and helpfully to me as a minister and, and as someone trying to think through these things on... Um, on the virus as well. And I specifically want to know as a pastor, you know, I can have these sort of theories about the way in which the Christian story intersects with the dystopian stories being told. But as a pastor of a local church, how are you seeing just individuals cope with fear? And how have you been able to apply the gospel story of hope uh, to those individuals? Well, someone jokingly made the point recently that um, they were not expecting to give up this much for Lent. <laughs> and uh, I think that the season itself is in many ways a paradigm for how we end up experiencing and dealing with this coronavirus situation in our country and in the world. And for those who have taken Lent very lightly in the past, I can imagine that this season is probably harder for them. But for those who have meditated and contemplated the sufferings of Jesus and understand to a certain level just what that journey to the cross meant for our Lord and what the consequences are for us, I think what that does, it doesn't alleviate all our fears and anxieties, but it gives us categories to think through our fears and anxieties. And that's where I think there's a lot of lack in our Christian evangelical world is that we only think of fear and anxiety as these blanket categories. We have fear or we don't have fear. But I think the Bible is much more nuanced than that. There are We need categories to think through fear, to think through anxieties, 
for instance, there's a difference between uh, being anxious and fearful and being concerned for things. Yeah. Right. And so that's something that we ought to keep in mind. We ought to have concern for, for instance, the elderly in our communities, but we ought not to succumb to the kind of uh, imprisoning, uh, imprisoning sensation that fear and anxiety can have on us. Fear in some ways submit to, submits to us rather than we submit to fear. And so the reaction in my community has been a little bit mixed, as you can expect any community. Uh, I've seen, and I think this is a good reaction with probably some literary consequences, I've seen a lot of people deal with this season with a tremendous amount of humor and comedy. Yeah. Thinking through life, thinking through uh, tragedy through the lens of, of comedy, which I think is something the Bible does quite a bit. God is doing something rather humorous in our society today. He is bringing people home, people who once treasured being outside the home. He is making uh, domestic life great again. <laughs> and, and I think that's a real powerful change in our culture. Uh, people who thrive in, in being workaholics are now trying to situate themselves in this forced Sabbath rest that the culture and I think and I think ultimately God has done for us, and so and then other people, of course, they metaphorically drink themselves into their sleeps or perhaps literally I don't know, and I think that's that's a danger too, and we need to be keeping an eye on these people, um, especially the kinds of statements they make on on social media. I think we have to be very cautious that what we don't communicate is that. All there is out there is darkness, right? Because if yeah. that if that becomes our theme, the lenses through which we read everything, the people to whom we minister will certainly follow us in that darkness, and and that's never helpful. No, that's exactly right. And I really appreciate too you drawing the distinction between anxiety, which we ought to fight against. But then real concern, I don't know if you've read Ross Douthat's new book on decadence, but one of the points he makes that really struck me was he said um, people stopped finding not just the Christian story, but religions generally irrelevant. He said not because of science, you know, which is sometimes how the story is told that the scientific, it's sort of the God in the gaps theory, you know, that, well, we can explain you know, what thunder is, so we don't have to say it's God's booming voice or something. He says, but actually, it's when death becomes less of a concern. Um, and he said, you know, in regular everyday life throughout most of human history, the vast majority of human history, you know, you get a splinter while you're chopping wood and it gets infected and you could die. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, pick up an axe in the morning, there's the possibility that death is around the corner. That said, for most people, death isn't, you know, a constant concern. It isn't a constant possibility. We've sort of relegated the death industry to a certain very small percentage of the population. We don't have wakes in the home. And death is just less a part of everyday life. And the sort of cosmic grand twist thrown by uh, by the virus, it seems to me, is it's brought death um, back into a concern. And as you say, as Christians, we ought not just say, oh, no, don't worry, don't worry, everything's going to be fine, because death is a concern. And yes, we've 
you know, elongated life in the past several decades. But that concern is something that I think we ought to, in a way, encourage, right? Perhaps this renewed concern for eternal matters, for life and death and what comes after could be a real opportunity to awaken our culture, our society uh, out of this state of decay and decadence. At least that's what we can pray for. No, I I agree completely. One of my friends was telling me this morning that uh, he was saying, we need new eschatological voices in our culture. People who think carefully about death and about the future through uh, the perspective of somebody who is in submission to our king who knows the future. And one of the things that you mentioned, the article that came from, um, you're quoting your friend, when he says uh, the church doesn't go through time, but time goes through the church. That really uh, struck a chord with me because I think that at this stage of the Lenten season, I think we're, we're in the 26th day, it seems that in this season of Lent, we are oblivious to the very fact that we have the theme of death before us. Mm-hmm. And it takes a worldwide phenomenon, so to speak, to get our eyes attentive to the concept of death. And so, you know, part of my my question to you as a way of opening up just this uh, final discussion of this here is that where has the church failed to be the primary voice as the death expert, so to speak? Uh, where have we failed in giving that voice to a, a phenomenon such as the coronavirus, which will be behind us hopefully very soon. Where have we failed, Dustin? You know, it's a good question. Um, the what's his? I forget his first name. His last name is Brown, uh, but he wrote this great history of relics, and he said uh, he says you know the origin of a relic is um, in the Roman world you would put the dead bodies as far away from the city as possible. And it was this great Christian conviction that you would have something like an ossuary or something like that, where you would go collect the bones, put them in a box and keep them near. And so you would have, you know, a jawbone or, or a, a splinter from a shin or something like that. Uh, not just, not as idol worship originally, but almost as a statement that these bones have a future. And it's not that, you know, as Paul says, I mean, we grieve, but we grieve as with hope. It's not that death isn't, you know, grievous to us. It is, but we grieve as those with hope. I heard Alistair Begg say one time that um, the uh, fundraiser he really wanted to do at his church, but knew he couldn't get any money for it was for a, uh, um, a cemetery on their property. Uh, and as, when he said that, it struck me. I mean, when was the last time you saw a brand new church built, like say a mega church, and they included on their property a graveyard? Now, part of that obviously is zoning issues, but laws always downstream from culture. We again are thoroughly de-Christian, whether you call it post-Christian or secular age or whatever it is, we have relegated death again. And Christians, I think, um, ought to, as a church, um, hold that up where we don't shy away from things like Lent, frankly. You know, it's amazing. Churches that uh, don't follow the church calendar hardly at all will still celebrate Christmas and Easter 
which is good, but that only tells part of the story. Right, right. In between those two events of Christmas and Easter, um, stand many events, of course, but uh, pinnacally stands Lent, stands the suffering and passion of Christ. And I don't know that the world will be interested in our solutions until they've heard that we actually understand the problem, which is where the dystopian idea comes in, where we say, you can look at um, Westworld, or you can look at The Walking Dead, or you can look at Contagion, uh, you can read The Plague. Uh, However, the problem is actually even worse than that. And once, uh, until, and unless the church is willing to do that again, to reintroduce Lent before Easter, I'm not sure that we'll have uh, a hearing before the world, especially in this time. Mm. In Easter, we remember that Jesus injected himself with the universal virus of sin so that his blood could be our vaccine. Dustin, I love that phrase, and it is your hope, and it is mine also, that um, the goodness of God would prevail, and we'll be together worshiping with our congregations on Easter Sunday and that we would indeed tell death, where is your sting? Dustin, thanks for joining, and I hope to do several more of these with you in the uh, weeks and months to come. Uh, The Lord bless you through this Lenten season, brother. You too, Yuri. It's always a joy and heartening for me to be able to talk to you, so thank you.